1: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.
0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Today we hear from the author of a new memoir that tells not only her own story, but the story of her home country, Albania, too, during a period of cultural and political
2: upheaval. Here's the journalist and author Luke Harding, foreign correspondent for The Guardian, with more. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event uh, with me, Luke Harding. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our guest tonight, Lea Upi, professor in political theory uh, in the government department of the London School of Economics, and of course author of the acclaimed new book Free, which we'll be talking about this evening. Lea, he, he, here is your book. It's 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 a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. It was a great pleasure and privilege to to review it for the Observer. I mean, I think it's. What one of the, the the most astonishing memoirs I've read, certainly um, a nonfiction book of the year, and you've had great praise from well from me, from the Daily Mail, from readers, from everybody. And I just, I mean, looking looking at your CV and your biography, I mean, you've written books on Kant's the philosopher, I think too. You've you've written sort of uh, philosophical academic works, uh, and then you write this dazzling, funny. Memoir. I mean, why, why, why the shift in in genre from from scholarship to uh, to personal?
0: Thank you, uh, thank you very much, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for joining and to look for reading the book and for your kind words and for your kind review. So it wasn't it wasn't intentional. I guess, like all good things, or a lot of good things that happen, aren't intentional. I initially planned to write a book on freedom and i wanted to talk about freedom both as a moral ideal and as it's institutionalized as it appears in different political systems and the extent to which these institutions reflect freedom or betray freedom and uh, i wanted to write about it in connection to liberal and socialist traditions because one of my long standing academic theoretical philosophical convictions has been that freedom is the common core of these traditions both liberalism and socialism Although a lot of people tend to think of liberalism as committed to this idea of freedom and socialism as committed to equality, I think what the socialist tradition in political thought does is to really radicalize the liberal idea of freedom and to talk about the ways in which in uh, capitalists' economic systems it actually produces margins of unfreedom and produces oppression and exploitation in ways that don't really reflect this ideal of freedom that is at the heart of it as a philosophical tradition. So I wanted to write about ideas and I wanted to write about real-world institutions and also how these ideas in some ways get distorted or reflected in real life. And I started thinking about examples because I was going to write a book for the mass markets it wasn't going to be an academic book. So I wanted to communicate to a wide readership. And as I began to write this book, the more I thought about it, the more I thought about examples, the more they came from Albania and not just Albania, but my own early life in Albania. And so in fact, I had memories of childhood and then teenage years and all these reflections on freedom were somehow, had somehow appeared one way or another in characters and so on. And so that's how it became more and more personal and took the project then took on a life of its own. And I was then abandoned to these characters that I remembered and began to use different material, stopped reading philosophy books, started going back to the diaries that I had kept as a child. And so then it it was an archaeological project in a way of recovery and discovery of an old self that I had kind of forgotten almost about.
2: Yeah I I mean it's interesting and and you start with your um 11-year-old old self I mean I mean the, the beginning of the book for those who haven't read it yet I mean I I guess we can do spoilers at this point but but you you, you it's December 1990 and you're on your way back from school and you are hugging Stalin I mean not literally Stalin obviously he's dead by that point but hugging a, a municipal statue of, of of Stalin I mean the the, the whole passage is, is surreal and funny and mordant and, and and arresting and then suddenly you hear these cries in the distance I mean t- tell us about this incident and why you began your your book with that
0: It was in December 1990 which is when things began to change in Albania. So 1990 rather than 1989 was the year of shifts and revolution for Albania. Uh, Albania was in 1990 a very isolated country. It had been isolated for uh, most of the second half of the 20th century, but increasingly isolated. It began as an ally of Yugoslavia, then of the Soviet Union, then of China. And by the time in which I was growing up in the eighties, we were completely on our own. And the rhetoric in school was that we were on our own because we were the only country left on earth that was still committed to the ideals of communism and to socialism as the transition to communism. And so in moral education, we were told about how everybody else around us had betrayed the legacy of Stalin, but there was this one proud nation in the Balkans, which was still holding on to Stalin and holding on to the tradition and promoting these communist ideals. And in fact, the slogan was that Albania was the anti-imperialist lighthouse of the world. And so, and I was fundamentally convinced of this. And uh, and, and in fact, you know, we were told in school that we had it hard, that we were isolated because we were on the right side. And every time someone is on the right side, they're always fighting with the rest of the world because there's all kinds of motives that make people not want to do the right thing. And uh, so when this protest happened in 1990, there had been a few... um, So the year between 1989 and 1990 was a strange year for Albania because we were aware that things were changing in the rest of the world. But because we had been so cut off and so isolated from Eastern Europe, And because the discourse in Albania was that these East European countries had begun to abandon socialism long time ago. And in fact, Albania had uh, had left the um, Warsaw Pact in 1968 when the Soviet Union invaded Prague. So there was a criticism of these real world, other socialist states, which was part of the everyday discourse in Albania, which meant that all these changes that were swiping Eastern Europe around that time, we didn't feel that were changes that were touching Albania in a way. We felt kind of left out. Except things began to change in Albania as well. And somehow, uh, you know, as things happen when the revolutions happen, you never you can never say there was this moment in which th- something changed. For me, the moment in which something changed was the moment in which I had stumbled in a protest by mistake, coming out of school and just going, taking the wrong way. And this is all writ- written in my diary of the time. And I started with that because I started with this diary and I remembered this episode of me hiding behind this statue of Stalin. And I was really scared because there was this people shouting on the street and dogs barking and following them. And I had gone to hide behind Stanley because I couldn't see any, anywhere else where to hide. But when I was hiding, I was also remembering my teachers, we did this class in moral education in school, who kept saying, you know, Stalin had this very strange smile. You couldn't really see it because it was hidden by his moustache, but he would smile with his eyes. And somehow, and I had written about this in in my diary as well, about Stalin's smile and his moustache and so on. And I remember when I was hiding behind this statue, at one point, I lifted my head to see whether Stalin was really smiling with his eyes, and I was completely shocked because he had been decapitated. So the statue had lost its head. And this was, for me, the moment of revolution was a moment of seeing that somebody had stolen Stalin's head. And, you know, it's really hard to explain and to kind of convey to people how you could be really attached to this figure for all your life and think this is the most one of the most important people in the history of humanity and the moral leader and a kind of moral ideal. And then somehow you realize that your fellow citizens or someone has out of the blue gone and done something which was completely inconceivable. And why would they do that? And in addition to that, they were shouting freedom and democracy. And I also remember thinking, well, why are they shouting freedom and democracy? We have a lot of freedom. We have a lot of democracy. This is. So that was a moment for me where I began to think that something was not as it appeared to be.
2: And, I mean, you, you write beautifully about how uh, at that moment, at that point, you, you, age 11, you were a believer, you were, you were a pioneer, you, you were, were an outstanding student. But your your parents, I mean, we'll, we'll talk more about them, but but their relationship to, to power, power structures uh, and to politics was always more ambiguous and evasive and strange. And there's a sort of mystery threading through the first half of the book about your family biography, which... You 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 tell tell d- 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 delightfully, and again, I don't know if you want to sort of, you know, explain it or not. But it, it turns out you're not you were not quite the person you thought you were.
0: Yeah, and this word biography played a really important role because uh, it was the term that we invoked to explain things about people, and we would distinguish between people be- be- with good biographies and with bad biographies, people with stained biographies and people with clean biographies. And I remember that I was surrounded by this word in school and through television, at home and so on. And I didn't quite know what it meant. And as with all words where you don't really know what they mean, you don't, you're also afraid to ask because I think it's so obvious that, you know, you shouldn't be asking about it, but it has something to do with your family background. And one thing that I reflected on my family background from very early on as a child, because I knew that there was something about me that was different in communist Albania. The one thing that was different and really stood out was the fact that my French was my first language. So people spoke French and my grandmother spoke French to me when I was growing up and this was not common and it was not common, not just because nobody would speak to their children in French. It was very unusual, but also because my grandmother wasn't French. She'd never been to France. She didn't have any relatives in France. She, did, she spoke French with an Albanian accent. And I know this because whenever we watched television uh, and there were French films with subtitles, I could see that her accent was different from the actors of sort of French, of, of French people. But somehow I had been brought up speaking French and I knew there was something to do with my family. And my grandmother always said, oh, it's because we liked the French Revolution or, uh, you know, you liked Les Misérables, which we used to read and, at school. And, and and there was a puppet show with Cosette and so on. So there were always this kind of cultural reasons. And then another thing that really stood out was that in communist Albania, everyone had photos of Enver Hoxha in their living room and... I remember I was completely obsessed with why we didn't have a photo of Enver Hoxha. And my parents kept finding excuses and saying, well, we need a nice frame. We've ordered the frame, but it's not coming. We're waiting for your birthday. We're waiting for this to happen. So somehow it was never the right time to put a photo of Enver Hoxha. I I remember, especially after his death, I was completely troubled by the fact that we didn't have a photo of Enver Hoxha. I was so committed, really wanted to meet him. When he died, all the work collectives in Albania went to pay tribute to the grave and I was begging my father to take me when his work would go, and somehow he didn't bring me. And these were, I remember all these tr- sort of childhood moments where I don't remember exactly how, you know, the lead up to these events, but I do remember this sensation of my parents were letting me down because I had this commitment to communism from school. And, and, and in general, I was really persuaded. And my parents somehow were very, um, quite strange about it. They wouldn't say don't do it or they wouldn't say we don't want a photo of Enverhoja. In fact, they would every time I brought it out explicitly, they'd say, of course we want it. Of course we
2: love Enverhoja and so on. But they actually never did it and never brought the photo. But there's a kind of mysterious sort of ghost in, in, in your family biography. There was a, a, another Upi who was a kind of notorious fascist collaborator, traitor and so on. And you were sort of confidently told when you were young that you had nothing to do with him, that he was... He was not related to you, but but that also turned out it turned out to be slightly more complicated than that, didn't it?
0: Yeah, <laughs> this also was an yearly recurrence, actually, not just because we studied about him in history classes in school. He was the equivalent of the um, of the Marshal Petain, so he was the equivalent of the kind of a head of the Vichy government who would have handed over the Albanian uh, crown from King Zog, who was in power at that point in the late 30s, to the Italian fascists, who had already colonized Albania de facto, but not officially. So. There were all these years in the 30s where Albania was increasingly subject to Italian influence, but there was this pivotal moment where at some point the Italians invaded, and this character was there to give the crown of the king from the king, who had been his former uh, collaborator, to these new Italian masters. And and he was in every history class, as you can imagine, in communist Albania, talking about fascism and and the resistance and so on. Every Albanian had basically had a, a family relative or a grandfather who fought in the resistance, and then there was this we didn't have anyone who fought in the resistance that was one problem the second problem was not only did we not have anyone who was fighting in the war but also the only person that we could relate to in history because we had the same surname was this fascist collaborator and so this was a huge source of disappointment and my family always said to me we're not related he just happens to have the same surname he also happened to have the same name as my father so it was name and surname was the same thing so i could not not be asked about this character Every year, But somehow I had to explain to my f- school friends that we didn't have anything to do with him and that it was just a coincidence until it turned out in 1990 when things changed in Albania that it wasn't a coincidence that in fact he was my great grandfather and that my father was called the same as his granddad basically because also this is what they did in these sort of big families they would call after, you know, uh, ancestors in a way. So, yeah, that was one of the mysteries of childhood, eventually revealed in nineteen ninety, which was really, again, a, a big surprise and blow in a way.
2: And I mean, you, you write wonderfully about your your childhood, but also your book is a is a is a complex and and delightful portrait of a marriage and and your your grandmother as well, who's this sort of luminous presence throughout the book and to, to whom you dedicate it. And I, I mean, I just sort of wonder you know what how did you feel about sort of reconstructing your 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 parents conversations and 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 their adult relationship which i mean i mean they were both high achieving but in some ways as you tell it somewhat incompatible, almost sort of dialectically incompatible, you could say.
0: Yeah, the way I was brought to it was I was always sensitive to these different ideas of freedom and uh, to the nuances of talking about freedom, actually. So I got to the book with characters, as I said, and, and with personal histories and with details and family stories and so on and family conflicts as well so It turned out to be a very different book from what I had initially imagined. But what I had initially imagined was a book on freedom and the different ways in which people talk about freedom and the ways in which they understand freedom and how they project it to different social systems. And when I then began to think about characters, I realized that one of the reasons I had been so attracted to these very different ideas of freedom, and in fact, one of the reasons why I find myself being really tolerant of also people who have completely opposite views politically to mine, was that, in fact, I had lived in this family where all this completely opposite political opinions had coexisted, not just in the family among relatives, but actually in a marriage. So my parents couldn't be more different from each other. And in fact, when I reflected on this later on, I realized that my mother had what one might call this very liberal, classical liberal idea of negative freedom. So she always thought you are free if nobody stops you from doing things like traveling, going somewhere or dressing in a certain way or saying certain things in public. And this animates all her struggles in the book. And in fact, it also animates all the struggles of all the Albanians who thought they were leaving behind state socialism because they wanted to leave behind state interference in a way. And my father, on the other hand, had this very, very different idea of freedom, which I, you know, I associated later on to positive freedoms, this idea that it's not just about being free from something, but you also have to have the freedom to achieve a certain conception of yourself and to realise certain opportunities. And so it's not enough, you know, and he always said this, it wasn't enough to be stopped from doing certain things. You are only free if you have opportunities to also realize these ambitions. And in fact, his dilemmas became particularly relevant in the second half of the book and in sort of in the Albania of post-1990, because he had grown up with this very idealistic account of what freedom and what kind of society he wanted to live in. And he thought Albania was going to become that society until he was in a position of responsibility in post 1990 Albania. And he was the CEO of the port of Douros. And he was in charge of enacting these uh, structural reforms that came to Albania with the help of the World Bank and the IMF and this idea of sort of shock therapy and quick liberalization of the country. And he was in a position of power. So he actually had to make decisions about making people redundant. And he found this extremely, extremely burdensome. Whereas for my mother, it was this is just the cost of transition. The market requires that people be laid off. They will find other opportunities. Everyone needs to fend off for themselves. It's nobody's job to protect these people. My dad really struggled with it because he couldn't accept that, you know, the state could just leave people or an institution could just leave people unprotected and defense lefts. And 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 I remember because these were years in which he was he was already, he was kind of anxious as a person. My mother was very different. She was very confident and she was completely fearless. And my dad has always been very anxious and very worried about things. And this was in, when he was in this position of responsibility. The conflict between the two became most vivid because they had such different worldviews which were clashing in this new society that we were living in.
2: But the, the way you write them, I mean, they're... they're... Dramatic, dramatically kind of realized characters with with novelistic dimensions and 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 just beautifully observed. I mean, your 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 father with his asthma puffer waiting for you to come back from the march. Your mother, you know, a bit passive aggressively doing the dishes and cleaning the attic and so on. I mean, you, it, it's all it's all delightfully told. And you know what the the thing that I think. You, you, I, I mean, as well as the ideas, which are kind of you know brilliant and, and, and interesting, it, it, it's just the comic sensibility. I mean, your, your sheer sense of humor and the wonderful irony with which you tell this personal story. I mean, where does that come from? Your 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 humor is that something you inherited, or is it is it from a family member? I mean, how, how do you explain it? I think it's maybe in in actually in the background
0: somehow. I think both in the family background. So my father was very ironic and he always made a lot of dogs and he had this very kind of irony and and comic approach to very tragic things and so he one of the things that i remember from very early on very early on in my life was my dad had all these anti-imperialist jokes and so the first time in which i heard about the middle eastern conflict and the problem of refugees in the middle east was when i had friends over for sleepovers and we would lay out mattresses on the floor and he would say oh good night palestinian can. And I had no idea. This was really, I was like five or six or something. We had cousins over and I remember thinking, what, what, what is a Palestinian camp and so on. So this is this is my first kind of socialization into political issues was this through this approach, which he had, which he eventually even almost elaborated later on where he said to me, well, you know, if you're in a very censored society, in a very oppressive state, and you have to find ways to express yourself, irony and jokes are one way in which you could almost just about do it it's not you always have to be very careful with jokes and you know you have to know where you make them and who you make them with and how you make them but irony i think is a very revealing attitude to life and and to 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 a lot of things actually so this has been partly in the family. And I think it's also maybe a little bit in kind of Balkan East European culture is this approach, to, which is almost kind of ironic slash absurd to very tragic things. People make jokes about death all the time. And they have this very dark humor, which uh, it, which I think is a way of bringing together very, very serious issues, but in a way that doesn't lead people to just kind of flagellate themselves and be just depressed and nihilistic, but to somehow find a way of saying, look, you need to somehow cope with stuff and get by. And
2: yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean your, your book is 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 divided into two, two, two very distinct halves. Where 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 you're in socialist Albania, and then you're in a sort of you know post-socialist neoliberal uh, you know world, which is complete completely different. But I mean, I mean, just before we talk about the sort of second half, I, I mean, there is that kind of moment when you're 11 in the summer of 1990, where you're going to pioneer camp for the last time, and it sort of it sounds. Almost kind of you know prelapsarian. I mean, you're 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 doing you know physics. You're swimming. The older kids are kind of flirting for the first time. You're camping out, sunshine. I, I mean, is it that you've made it ideal, or, or actually was it ideal at, at that moment?
0: I remember it as ideal, and I mean, I don't know. I I I think it's because I never as a child suffered from political oppression in a way. You know, when you're a child, you don't have political opinions, and you don't think of censorship in that political way. You think about security and the things that someone asked me recently if I was afraid of anything during communism in Albania, and I think they meant were you afraid of anything politically. And when I tried to think about things I had been afraid of, I could think of dogs and drunken people, but nothing really to do with you know with the system or with with society or with the police. So I felt like. My life was very secure, and when I remember these moments of childhood pre-awareness, before knowing what was going on in my family, they were these moments of the pioneer camp and the queues. And it's it wasn't a it wasn't they weren't memories without scarcity, because I also remember that you know I was, for example, having these fights because. I wanted to eat honey, and I could only have. I only liked to eat honey, and my parents were saying, "No, you can't have honey. There's no honey in the shops. So you can only have jam or fig jam, which was the kind of staple that you could find in every shop. It was fig jam, and I hated fig jam. So I remember these moments of full of fighting, and and my grandmother had this expression, which I eventually later discovered came from Brecht, where she said it was a kind of subversion of Brecht. You know, Brecht says first comes food, and then comes morality, and my grandmother had reverted yeah, yeah. that into first comes morality, and then food. And I eventually had become convinced of this that you know we didn't have to worry too much about not having food and having long queues as long as it was a moral society, which Albania I thought obviously was. And so, um, yeah. So when I think about these episodes of my childhood, as I said, there were conflicts and there was scarcity, but there is a sense in which I think every child accommodates to the constraints with which they live. And I sometimes now look at my kids, for example, in a traffic light when we're stuck in the traffic, you know, when we were traveling we rented a car somewhere, we end up being stuck for hours. And they're in a queue and they're just waiting there. And it doesn't lead them to question fundamentally the system in which they live. You know, the fact that there are these traffic lights and there is this long queue of cars and you could be there for two hours. You just absorb it and accept it as a fact of life. And I think it was the same thing for me. There were all these queues about food and we didn't have milk and we had to get up. At four in the morning, took you for milk and uh, they were just, you know, what you live with and what life has. And so so when I remembered afterwards, it's it's not that it's idyllic because I made it idyllic or because I wanted to present it in a way that was sort of making people feel nostalgic. But this is just how I remembered it and how I had written about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you, uh, were you aware that your family was quite unusual? I mean, you, you spoke fluent French, which was pr- pr- pretty odd at that time. Your parents were intellectuals who, who, whose lives were sort of well, semi-ruined by their kind of backstories, by by their biographies. I mean, your, your grandmother you know, attended King Zog's wedding. I mean, y- you were not your typical kid. And, and there's also some wonderful footage, I think, you tweeted of you being interviewed by I can't remember if it was an Italian or a French TV crew as, as, as a kind of a, again, as a kind of small kid. I mean, I mean, you you were a bit unusual. Is that, is that fair to say?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I was unusual. I mean, I didn't know that I was unusual. Obviously there was a sense in which that, as I say, with through the French or through the kind of family culture or through the way in which my parents, for example, never hit me. And this was unusual. A lot of people were, a lot of children were hit. By parents and I mean it wasn't like violent but there, it, there were certain norms in my family which I I think it's fair to say they were on the conventions of Albanian society and that stood out certainly so I knew I, I stood out but I didn't know for what reason I stood out and it was never conveyed to me that there was a different political identity which I carried with me which came from my parents and my family background my grandmother especially that was the reason for why I stood out. And so I had grown up with this sense of not quite belonging. But since I was very committed ideologically, I was making up for this sense of not belonging that came from the family by being even more committed in a way to the society and by being kind of good student. And I think that I, I was equally subjected in a way to the influence of the of the family and of the state. And it's only mm. 1990 that it became clear that these two influences were pulling in opposite directions. Before that, they seemed to be going in the same direction. And, it was only in 1990 that it caused a sort of almost like an identity crisis. Y-
2: yeah, I mean, and there's this kind of great, great revelation, isn't isn't there? As the regime crumbles, that you 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 discover who you are and where you, where you came from. And and what's interesting, what's compelling about the second half of the book is that it certainly feels like things get worse. I mean, to some extent for you personally. I mean, you're you, you, there's a there's a chapter which is just your adolescent diary. I mean, we, we all wrote those, but but yours is is done against the background not just of kind of you know teenage crushes, but of Kalashnikov clashing being fired in the the street outside and civil war. And Albania seems to fall into into darkness. I mean, is that a fair assessment?
0: Yeah, I think uh, there was a sense in which the what happened in 1990 was that there was this fundamental belief and faith in this new society that would come and that would deliver freedom and for a lot of people who had lived under communism like my parents who had lived all their lives under communism, like my parents and my grandmother uh, before that there was a sense in which the transition brought its sacrifices and these sacrifices just needed to be made on in the name of this better world. Even though it was very obvious and very plain to everyone to see that the transition had its costs. A lot of people were losing jobs and a lot of states' enterprises were closing down. There was lots of uh, migration outside Albania and then eventually there were these uh, fraudulent pyramid Ponzi schemes which asked people to put their investments in hope for high savings and then they all collapsed and so in 97 the whole country basically ended up in something close to civil war because of this uh, financial collapse so there were, throughout the 90s there were these moments of darkness and a sense in which the securities had gone but the new freedoms hadn't quite arrived or they hadn't quite arrived for everyone And what differed, I think, in my case from that of my parents and my grandmother was that for them, these were all transition costs and sacrifices that you had to make because you, you know, because freedom had a cost and because we'd had this very hard life under communism. And so now we just had to kind of put up with one last effort. And to me, it resembled very much the rhetoric of the last years of communism in Albania, where we were increasingly poor and increasingly, you know, there was scarcity and there were queues and things weren't working. It was very opposite we weren't working, but there was a rhetoric and a discourse around the fact that, well, it's because we are the only country that is committed to communism and to, it's because of socialist freedom and we want freedom to work for everyone. So I could see, in a way, I was putting the two systems in parallel and kind of assessing them equally critically in a way in which my parents weren't doing, because for them, this was something that had been promised all their lives and most of their lives had been spent in hardship. And now it was just a question of kind of wrapping up and making one final effort. Whereas for me, half of my life had been under communism and I didn't remember the brutality of it because I just hadn't lived it and I hadn't perceived it firsthand like that. And then the second half was going through just growing up. And part of the, as you say, part of the discomfort of growing up is the anxiety and the insecurity and the kind of discovery of the world. But the other was that the world that I was coming to discover was not a pretty world to look at, because my friends were leaving, there was sex trafficking, there was drug traffics everywhere. a lot of people were, had to make a living out of whatever they could because the state, they knew the state wasn't protecting them. And so they began to take up these jobs that they all considered as, they were all mentioned as normal employments. So, we you know, when said someone was doing drugs, it was as though you'd said in, in communism, you'd say someone is a bus driver or someone is a nurse. And now you'd say, well, someone is just uh, going up and down the pavements in Italy or uh, someone is doing cigarettes or things like that, or someone is smuggling people. So all of these things where there was no sense of moral assessment or or there are no moral hierarchies in a way. People would just do whatever they could to survive. And this is the world in which I was maturing. And in 97, that world really kind of came, everything almost concentrated in this image of brutality and state collapse, which was in some ways similar to 1990 because it felt like a systemic breakdown. But in other words, it's even worse because in 1990, there was this idea that things are changing and there is hope. And in 1997, as far as I could make out, there was not even hope because there wasn't a new system that you could transition to. It was just that same system that you had to somehow live with. And that was what I found really hard and which made me, I guess, existentially question a lot of things. And in fact, I I had to decide this was the year in which I had to do my... I was doing my A-levels and I had to decide what to do at university. And I was so paralyzed about the future that I couldn't think of a single profession that I wanted to commit to, which is why I ended up doing philosophy because it wasn't a profession. It was like you just ask questions, and you you professionally learn to ask good questions, and and the reason I did it it's because I couldn't I couldn't. I couldn't see myself as either a doctor or a lawyer or an economist all of all of these things what, is, what what sense does it make to be an economist when the whole society is collapsing around you and what sense does it make to be a lawyer when there is no law and order outside you because there's kalashnikovs outside your window and there is no you know the state has no control over the use of force anymore so all of these professions that are somehow connected to careers and career structures and trodden paths just made no sense. They all looked really absurd, and like there was no value to any of them. Which is the same way, end up doing philosophy. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I mean, you, you give the impression that these, these two systems, you know, pre, pre and post nineteen ninety, are sort of differently bad, and and that actually the, the, the gangsterish Albanian incarnation in many respects is, is worse. But what, what I kind of most enjoyed about reading, reading those passages what where, where there's sort of your droll remarks about language, that that what you know, one day your school textbook is full of Leninism and and, and Marxism, and, and then it's sort of hastily rewritten and it's about it's about structural reform and economies and and the, the new language of the marketplace, which seems as kind of Leaden and, and and ridiculous as the old stuff, almost the way you tell it. I mean, is that is that how you saw it?
0: I think yeah. I wanted to talk about the power of ideology in a way in 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 shaping the world and the way we understand the world and in kind of making creating the interpretive categories with which you interrogate everything that surrounds you. And it, I think it was a little bit like that because it's true that, you know, under communism, there was censorship. And so there was some discourses that you either didn't have access to or you had access to with great difficulty. And there were books that you couldn't read. And and then eventually, I remember in 1990, people were literally burning books. They were burning Marx and they were burning Lenin and everything that they had in their libraries. And they were, everybody was really excited about Hayek and Friedman and von Mises. And they're all the kind of Austrians were suddenly discovered. And I remember this because i remember my my family which was unusual in the way which they responded to all these things my dad was saying well we don't burn books that was very you know as a child first i was very committed communist and then i became very committed capitalist so i decided to participate in this kind of mass uh, burning of the books in the neighborhood. And I remember I rushed home to try and get the Enver Hoja book that I had to try and burn it. And my dad was like, no, no, we don't burn books. No, we don't even, even, even if it's
2: Enver Hoja. <laughs> Not even him. <laughs> so,
0: so um, but there there was a sense and afterwards when I reflect on this, I think there was a sense in which you can't live. It's very hard to live without an ideology. It's almost like faith or like religion or something. You know, you need a system of belief somehow. And I think that it was this transition from one belief structure to another belief structure that was really sudden and which meant that people didn't really have time to elaborate the interpretive categories with which they might develop a criticism of society or, you know, question what they were getting into. And so it's true, for example, that we had political pluralism, but we didn't have a single anti-system party that emerged in 1990. They were all basically committed to this new world of freedom and democracy. And so, yeah, I think that's... there was a sense in which we had had the dictatorship of the proletariat and then we didn't have that category anymore. And but what we did have was the new civil society or that, you know, we didn't have, um, I don't know, the party didn't protect us, but we had the Open Society Institute, for example, that was giving opportunities to everyone to flourish and find their roots in this new liberal society.
2: You ended up becoming a professor of political theory and teaching Marx and, and you write about your mother. Basically, kind of rolling her eyes, but both at your your choice of profession, philosophy, and at your particular choice to sort of teach m- Marxism. I mean, what what, what, what what why did you do that? I mean, what 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 were you thinking?
0: It's interesting because for me, it was a way of recovering a story about. Freedom and about the left, which I felt had been obscured in communist Albania, as much as there had been censorship of, you know, liberalism and of free market structures and so on. So I felt I was curious, and I remember I, I said, as I said, I, studied, I decided to study philosophy. My parents were really hostile to this choice because they associated philosophy to Marxism. And they uh, and they hated Marxists because they hate because effectively in communist Albania being a Marxist meant being someone who was reporting on them or someone who was you know in the party and, and a the spy and so so they were extremely hostile to philosophy because they were hostile to Marxism. And I had promised that I would study philosophy, but I would steer away from Marx. But then eventually I went to Italy, I studied in Rome and I was hanging out with uh, uh, I was an immigrant in Italy. So even though I came from this kind of upper class Albanian family, when you go to Italy you're in 1990, you're just one of the many Albanians who go to Italy and you know, in, immediately you become a target of these were the years in which there was lots of racism and lots of stereotypization of Albanians because there had been all these waves of Albanian immigrants you know, in, in Italy in the 90s. And so basically being an Albanian in 90s in Italy was like being someone who would steal money or, you know, be really suspicious or there was lots of racism. So basically, that meant that uh, the, the, the people that I became friends with were the ones who were extremely keen to show me that they were very open to immigrants and they loved, you know, Albanians and so on. So almost went the other way, which meant they were usually from the kind of far left or something like that. And the thing that uh, attracted. So, so I, I had all these friends from from the left. And the thing that was really interesting was that every time we celebrated, I, you know, they, they read, they did these reading groups on Marx and so on, and they invited me to these reading groups. And I kept thinking about my childhood and about my moral education teacher and what we knew about Marx in school, which had been, you know, very simplified and for children. But I still somehow related them to my childhood and to my background. And the thing that I remember drew me almost into this whole literature and this way of thinking was their responses, which was, well, what you had wasn't really socialism. And, you know, this isn't really Marx. Yeah, yeah, you you know, you you thought you had an interest in Marx and you thought you understood Marx, but actually were really mistaken. And for me, that was a bit like a kind of an instance of almost liberal paternalism in the way in which you approach the people who come from the periphery. And you just tell them, well, you know, we know better than you what's development and we know better than you what's kind of sorry.
2: I, I, I was going to say liberal paternalism. I, I mean, that's a very polite way of putting it. I mean, it struck me as being incredibly patronizing and annoying. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't, you, you didn't kind of punch your co-leftists on the nose, actually, and and tell them off.
0: Well, I mean, no, I'm very tolerant of disagreement. So it's not that I was, I, I was just, I was just perplexed because I felt that, you know, we celebrated the same heroes and that there were the same books that people thought were interesting and, and persuasive and, and worth reading. But I somehow approached Das Kapital with a completely different way of relating to it from how people approached it. There were all the people there who would approach this as this kind of almost like a religious text who had the truth and this truth needed to be realized. And for me, that truth had actually been tried and tested. And in fact, I was feeling guilty because my mom was saying to me, why are you reading this book? This is like, this book is responsible for all the horrible things that happened to us. And in some ways it wasn't entirely untrue because whenever I read, I remember reading Kapit- Das Kapitan, I remember reading about, you know, how People were treated as personifications of economic categories, something in this introduction that really struck me. And I think and I kept thinking, well, these are not just economic categories. This is my family. You know, there's my great grandfather who was a property owner and my other grandfather was, you know, a capitalist who had factories and was exploiting workers. And then there were all the peasants that my grandmother had been sent to labor camp with and somehow never identified with. And she kept kind of being very superior about. Uh, But, basically, I just couldn't relate to these as just abstract categories. There was something that you needed to understand about the way in which these texts turn into people and turn into histories and turn into political visions. And there's something that you can learn from engaging with the way in which these political visions are enacted that I think is really important if you're thinking, especially if you're thinking that there is value to the critique still. And so for me, it was a really perplexing attitude, this sort of leftist rejection of everything that came from Eastern Europe as this is not really socialism. Our socialism, when we do it, is going to be great and there will be no bloodshed and no violence and it's going to be amazing. And your socialism, it's because you're so backward and so primitive and somehow you got it all wrong and now we need to tell (laughs) you what it's like. This was, I mean, I'm simplifying, but this is how I felt at the time. And I felt that this was not the mature attitude to take to history, it's not to say, well, when I do it, it's going to be better. Or when these guys did it, it was all a mistake. And that you need to think about, okay, what from ideas filters in societies and how does it filter? And what is it in their conditions and in their histories that makes them the societies that they are? And that it requires a more nuanced approach, I guess, which is why I became then attracted to leftist and, and socialist thinking, because I felt there was something to the critique of capitalism, which I had also lived and I had felt through. And I was convinced by a lot of the arguments. arguments around commodification, around exploitation, around exclusion of people from the margins and so on, around the fact that basically this is a capitalist society doesn't give you a full account of freedom. But then on the other hand, I was also aware of how this all gets distorted and how it becomes part of a very repressive state system and that it requires very nuanced and sophisticated approach to what you mean by democracy and how do you democratize society. And in fact, I also felt, this is the last thing I'll say about this, I also felt that what was lost in our engagement with the dissident movements in Eastern Europe of the 90s was the fact that the critique of state socialism was very quickly conflated with an endorsement of free market economies. And I don't think in a lot of Eastern European dissident movements, what there was as fundamental critique of democracy in their societies and a desire for a change and something different. But the something different wasn't necessarily free market economy and structural reform and shock therapy and neoliberal economics that we got eventually. And I felt it was really important to tell that story as a story of recovery of this kind of genuine spirit of democratization of the 90s.
2: Yeah. Okay. I've got a a heap of questions and we should try and we should try and kind of blitz through them. Uh, I've got a question saying that you thought Albania had democracy and freedom when you were in school. Why did you think that? Was it all propaganda or were there things that were free and democratic about the communist system?
0: No, I don't think there was anything that was free and democratic about the Albanian communist system. But what I think there was was there was a critique of the outside world. And there were things that were being said about other countries, about capitalist countries, for example, about, you know, the exploitation that existed in other parts of the world or about unequal development or about child labour, which I think were and are still true. So uh, there was a sense in which what was going on in Albania, I think, was fundamentally flawed and, and, and wrong and brutal and oppressive. But there was a story about the outside world that was being told in Albania, which had some overlaps with, I think, some things that are still true. And so this is what, uh, when I talk about Albanian society, when I, I don't want to talk just about the repression and the brutality and the kind of the official state propaganda. I also want to talk about the way in which discourses about the outside world shape the sensitivities of ordinary people. And so I don't want to tell the story when I tell about the story of Albanian socialism, just of the state structures and of the state repression. I also want to talk about society and human relations and ideas of solidarity that flourished in hardship and so on. And that's where I think you could recover this idea that there was a parallel freedom, which wasn't necessarily the freedom brought by the state, but which was almost like a freedom that even that repressive state couldn't kill in a way, and that was there in, in human relations.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you talk about the solidarity when standing for Q and that, that, that people would respect other people going off and, and replacing themselves with a stone or a pot or something and come back again. That actually neighbors looked out for each other and I mean that that's all delightfully done. I've got an interesting question here which says uh, basically how are you viewed in Albania and and might I add you know what what's the reaction been in Albania to your to your book?
0: Well, it's I I guess it's. <laughs> It's a little bit less positive than in the rest of the world, let's say. So while, uh, <laughs> while uh, but, but I don't want to over, over labor this point or overdo it, but I think because it has had such universal acclaim in everywhere else apart from Albania, I'd say that the only one or two critical reviews, very critical reviews that there have been of the book have been in Albania. And uh, in part because I think the discourse around the past and historical injustice in particular, these are Albania is still very much a divided society that suffers from this legacy of historical uh, unsettling of accounts in a way. And there is constantly a, a, an effort to find responsibilities and to, to talk about the past. But in this very complex network of responsibilities in a way where, you know, everybody was both a victim and an oppressor and people had spies in their family or, you know, there were honest people, both among party officials and amongst kind of formerly persecuted, former victims of the regime. And there were people who would be uh, nasty and harm others also on both sides of society. So it is a very complex society, which is very divided in part because of this complexity of responsibility. And so to Talk about the past in a way that is nuanced, and more importantly, the way which I try to do in my book, which is to just let lots of different voices talk and have lots of different ways of telling the story. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, it, it could it could be a radio play or a drama. I mean, I mean, it, it, you know, it is a memoir. It's all true, but but. But You're right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I Um, I made a very conscious effort because I knew, and this is also partly why uh, there is this child and the the book is written in the voice of a child, because I think to have a child character, it's almost like, you know, you have the, the tin drum or there's these characters in the history of literature where you have a kind of naive character that records the complexity of the world around them. And because the main character is so naive, you could have lots of different stories and lots of different interpretations that play out. And because I didn't want to, I wanted, I didn't want to write the book as a political philosopher. And so I didn't want to be paternalistic with the readers in terms of telling them this is how you should interpret reality and this is how you should uh, interpret communism and this is how you should interpret liberalism. I just wanted to tell different stories of different people and talk about different conceptions of freedom and then let the reader draw their own conclusions and join the conversation in a way. And somehow this has worked everywhere except for Albania where there has been skepticism to the extent that my motives were questioned because nobody believes that I really wanted to do that and that I all think that there was some kind of surreptitious efforts to tell some much more complex than that, and that there was a kind of deep truth that my book is trying to convey about communism and about liberalism, and that's, I think, what has um, in part reflected in the criticisms and, say, in some of the reviews where people are always trying to find the kind of, what is my fundamental commitment, when in fact my fundamental commitment is made very clear in the epilogue. I mean, I say this, the epilogue is the only part of the book where the author really emerges and says what they think about the world. And so, and, and in the rest, I didn't want to have my own views imposed on the reader, and I just wanted to let different people tell their stories, as I say, and, 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 let, and write an, a very open book and be as true as possible, because I thought it was really important. If you write a book about freedom, that you write it in, respect, in a way that respects the freedom of people when they read it, and that you don't write it in this paternalistic way. So this was all very yeah, conscious, yeah. very deliberate on my side, but somehow it hasn't quite
2: worked in Albania. <laughs> it hasn't. Do, quite- just so, Um, Leah, just a quick follow-up to that, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, Maria says, you know, where is Albanian society now? Is the nostalgia for the communist years or is it seen in a negative light? Just do me one minute on that.
0: I think... It's less nostalgic than other countries. I think there's more nostalgia about the communist years in Eastern Europe, but there's certainly, when I talk to people, when I talk to taxi drivers or when I go to Albania and sort of try and get the word on the street, people would say, oh, there were more hospitals here and you know, this uh, we didn't have this, or there was more solidarity back then. And so there are a sense in which people are nostalgic about certain aspects of not so much communism, but life in common under communism and about their social relations and what they have lost the fact that you know this is a society that is now a society of emigrants and there's lots of people who have left their homes and so the families have been disrupted by this process and so there is a sense in which i guess many miss community and uh but i don't think there is you know a desire to return to having communist albania in the way in which you know communist albania would have been part of this in in the way in which the state story about communist Albania would have. But I don't think there's any nostalgia for the uh, anti-imperialist lighthouse, let's say.
2: Okay, Uh, another interesting question here. Uh, Do you feel that being a woman shaped your view of freedom? Uh, And I would just add to that question. I mean, there are very many strong women in your book, particularly your grandmother and, of course, your mother. I mean... It's got anything to do with gender or is it just to do with you?
0: No, this is a very good question. It's a very interesting question also because it's a question that's unsettled in my mind as well. I feel that I discovered gender really, really late in my life, actually, in part because I grew up with these very strong women for whom being a woman was never singled out as in any way important. Uh, my mom was definitely the kind of dominant parent and uh, and so she was never struggling for, you know, voice in the family and also in society more generally. She was... Uh, my grandmother was the same. She was very strong. So I had these very strong role models. And also in Albania, the, the rhetoric in communist Albania was that women would formally do everything that men did. So they would work in mines and they would work uh, in every state job. There were no women that stayed at home. So formally, it was a very uh, equal society, equal both in its opportunities and in its oppression. So you would oppress equally men and women and you would uh, and you would give opportunities <laughs> in some ways. It wasn't quite like that. When I thought about it afterwards, and I have this chapter in a book in which so I tried to reflect on questions of gender a bit more, I felt that when I thought about this afterwards, it wasn't quite like that, because it's true that they were officially formally equal, but it's also, there was a legacy of the past and uh, which meant that women actually did most of the domestic labor. And so women did yes, outside all the state jobs like men. So they would be drivers, truck drivers, train drivers, work in the mines, be engineers, whatever. But then they would also come home and look after the children all the time and they would wake up at five in the morning. I had all these friends who didn't have grandmothers who lived with them and so couldn't share with grandparents, the domestic labor. And they would, you know, their mothers would wake up at four in the morning and clean the houses frantically until it was time to go to work and then they'd go to work and then come back and then look after the children. So basically they did everything. So I think it's a complex... um, it was a complex question. And it's not one that, as I say, because I was never urged to reflect on from very early on and because my mother also had this very hostile attitude to tokenism. So at one point she was the leader of a women's organization in Albania in the 90s, which was a kind of opposition women. And her job was to try and get visas for the mothers of immigrants. And she hated the fact that these Working class women weren't given visas because they were seen as suspicious. But on the other hand, her association was told all the time to kind of do affirmative action, and she was like, "What is this affirmative action? I don't get it. I, I don't. I hate this stuff. I don't care about it. Why are they not giving the visas to my working mothers? You know, these are women who want to see their children." And somehow she felt that the way in which uh, she was, uh, the way in which these decisions were made, were very arbitrary and very tokenistic and very superficial. And so I had grown up seeing that, and I think part of me was quite hostile as well to this tokenistic way of, of talking about gender questions without thinking of all the relationships. And my mom was very resentful. You know, she kept saying this embassy official who didn't give me my my visa for my women in my organization, I bet, uh, you know, his wife does all the dogs all the time and someone else does her care work. And so she had all these kind of ways of thinking about domestic labor and, and distribution, which were which weren't just about gender. They were often also about class and about, you know, distribution of power and so So I think, um, yeah, so I don't know what being a woman has done to me because I feel like it's an ongoing process of reflection that um, Mm -hmm. I only really started thinking clearly about very, very late in my life that I didn't grow up with this awareness.
2: Okay, interesting answer. So look, another question here about whether basically the Albanian experience of transition to democracy and in inverted commas, how similar was that to what other you know, Eastern or I guess you call them Central European countries went through like, like East Germany, for example, or, or Hungary or Romania? I mean, what, was the Albanian experience the same or was, was it different?
0: I think because the the experience of communism was very, very radical and very, very different and much more austere in a way, I think the transition to liberalism was also in some ways more radical and more austere. And harder, But when I uh, when my gave my books to friends from Eastern Europe, and now I get lots of emails from readers from Eastern Europe who always say to me, well, I grew up in Poland, but I, I really recognize your childhood. We all had bubblegum wrappers. And I, think, I feel there is a sort of a, a category of the ex-communist ex-child that is a kind of general identity which cuts across national boundaries. And so I get lots of, as I say, Romanians or people... Uh, across the Soviet Union writing to me and saying, yeah, we had this as well. And we had state indo- we had these state classes where we were told about the proletariat. And so, so some of the categories were obviously similar. And I think what I've also noticed is that the sense in which liberalism turned out to be a betrayal is also widespread in Eastern Europe, which I think perhaps explains some of the hostility that you now see in a lot of East European countries to basically liberal institutions and to this kind of liberalizing effort. I feel that the transition took its toll in many of these states and uh, I mean, you could also, if you read Svetlana Alexievich, for example, talks about the Soviet Union and so on. Some of these experiences of transition were equally harsh and equally a disappointment for people in these other parts of uh, Eastern Europe, not just in Albania. And I think that has meant that people have become much more skeptical and to me, and this is where I part ways, I guess, with most East these Europeans, almost too sceptical and too nihilistic about any possibility and any alternative and any sense of you could believe in anything after these two massive historical disappointments, you know, first with socialism and then with, with liberalism. I feel like people can't quite, they can always see the criticism, but they can't quite believe in anything constructive. And I feel that for me, that's not the case, but that's only because I guess I'm a Kantian and so I'm philosophically committed to seeing something positive. And-
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you end up in a sort of Putinish kind of nihilistic place where there's no truth and no value and no, no anything really other than kind of sovereign power and and force. Uh, l- listen, we've only got a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask you one question uh, about writers, about which other writers you admire. And, you know, when you were putting this book together, what what you were sort of reading... to to kind of, I guess, you know, fertilize, protonize your imagination. I mean, tell us about your writing world a bit.
0: Yeah, so I have always been a great reader. And so it wasn't so much that I was reading when I was writing things that would put me in the mood for writing this book. It's more that I sort of recovered all the different things that I had been attracted in. And I guess I can, you know, if I if I write if I talk about writers, I think I could divide it in phases and stages almost. If I think about my childhood, because I grew up with very little television, I was into uh, classical Greek literature. So like I was reading a lot of Homer and Aeschylus and Sophocles. And, uh, and I was obsessed with Greek tragedies and Greek myths because, you know, I couldn't get my head around the fact that Greek gods were both powerful and powerless. And at the same time so that was my sort of first first range of influence really came from this kind of classical greek myths world basically and, and, and also all these you know, tragedies that are somehow tragedies about discovering the truth and so on, I felt they probably were quite important in the way in which I was thinking about literary literary techniques and so on. And then when I was growing up as a teenager, I became really interested in Dostoevsky and uh, 19th century Russian literature especially, so Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And I think partly because they were gravitating, all these authors were gravitating around these same themes of kind of freedom and necessity, which are also part of these Greek myths that I was talking about and uh and I, at some point i was reading uh, in 1997 i was reading war and peace and i remember that war and peace ends with this kind of big sweeping critique of the philosophy of history where you know tolstoy tries to show how it's pointless to try and reconstruct meaning in history. And, and I remember that that was what made me decide to study philosophy, this kind of thinking about this line and thinking, well, is it true that there's no meaning in history, and is it true that there is no, uh, that it's just these thousands of different actions and reactions mean that it's all kind of absurd. And then, I guess the third, so, so this, this was my, I guess, in terms of literature, this is my world, this 19th century novels, and in particular, classical Russian, so Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. Range and Turgenev to some extent as well, and then the last, I guess, the last influence is philosophical, and that's more my studies and uh, and kind of almost foundational. In the book, I'm really interested in Enlightenment philosophical tradition, and especially in Kant and Marx. And my most of my work is trying to show that. There is an overlap in these uh, philosophical traditions and ideas of Kant that tell us what the right thing to do and how to think about morality that can be combined productively with ideas of Marx around critiques of existing societies and that give you a good foundation from which to think about the future and to think about sort of future social systems in a way. But yeah, it's a combination of literature and, and German, Russian literature, I'd say, and German philosophy. Uh,
2: look, look we're, we're practically out of time. but one. Very quick question, which I I, want to know the answer to. Uh, Give me a quick answer. Is there going to be a follow up? I mean, I would love to read more. I I mean, you must have more diaries, more material. It's been such a success. Uh, I mean, can you tell us? Will you do another? Will you do a follow up sequel?
0: Uh, I don't know. I'm thinking about both a prequel and a sequel. So, the sequel, if I do one, (laughs) if I do a sequel, it will be called Equal. And so, there will be a free and an equal. And Equal would be about my part in Italy and my experiences as an immigrant of a kind of upper class Albanian family being an immigrant in in Italy and my experiences of of poverty and oppression. for scholarships and stuff like that but i think uh, but maybe what i will do next is actually a prequel which will be around my grandmother and her life in this transition and the interwar years in the balkans and the if the influence of the collapse of the ottoman empire on this emergence of uh, nation states in the Balkans and these ideas of liberalism and fascism and uh, socialism which were all there in the interwar period which I think are really important also to understand the current predicament, because I think there's always a comparison between now and the 1930s, 1929, the crisis, financial crisis, and this kind of birth of different ideologies and all these debates around reform and revolution, which I'd like to talk about, hopefully, maybe using, again, the same sort of literary techniques, so.
2: Well, I mean, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't, I yeah, can't wait. Well, Listen. Uh, <laughs> we'll see if it works.
0: That, that, <laughs> see if, it works, that, that, if the magic works again. <laughs>
2: The the, the the magic the magic is strong. It sounds like something out of Star Wars, but but anyway, it's going to be great—a prequel and a sequel. So, Leia, thank you very much. It's been a delightful conversation. It's such a brilliant book. Just for anyone who hasn't read it, or you know, is thinking about ordering it, here it is. It's it's just exquisite and funny uh, and profound. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having me and for the conversation.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket.